When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Well, Ben, this is unusual. This is a really weird one. This is this is strange. Uh, so we've been doing this show for a while. Yeah, but uh, almost nine years, probably. Almost nine years, yeah. huh? Yeah. That's, that's crazy. It flew by, and for the... Uh, we, we do our best, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we try to stay on top of things. We try to stay on top of things, you know, and we, for the most part, I think we do okay, but every so often... Uh, we get involved in a misadventure. Yeah, and this one, I don't know if we can even blame this one on ourselves or not. It's hard to say who's at fault for this, but we have a we have a missing episode. We have a lost episode. And we're about to share that with you right now, but uh, here's, here's the really unusual twist of this whole thing. It's not lost for everybody. Right. So <laughs> I'll, I'll try to explain this, and I don't know the, the technical details on this at all, but uh, we had an episode that published about one year ago, uh, almost one year ago, exact, really close. It was, it was supposed to publish on June 28th of 2016. And it did, sort of. It, it did in some places. It, there were about three places where it did publish, three places where it didn't publish, mm-hmm. and then, you know, a variety of others that, you know, that, that information gets disseminated to so that, you know, other people can pick it up. So right. there's a group of listeners that do have this already in their playlist and uh-huh. a group that never saw it. And it's not on our, our carstuffshow.com site. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not on iTunes currently. It's not in our own database. Uh, it's gone. It disappeared, but it does live out there elsewhere. So you may pick this up from some other places. Yeah. Like, um, like PodTrack and uh, PodTrail, I think is one of them. Um, some, some other sites like there's Transmit, I think is the name of one. And, uh, legend has it that if you go into uh, a room with the lights off, and say car stuff into the mirror three times, it'll come on. <laughs> it'll appear behind you yeah, in a but ghostly you, fashion. But you can't pause, so you have to be ready to stand there the whole time. <laughs> you got to listen to the full 40-minute episode. Honestly, but, I think pot track's better. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, these these jokes aside, you know, we, uh, we are still searching for an explanation for this. Uh, I know what you guys are thinking, which is what I automatically thought, was that we got shut down by the man. Yeah, well, I'm sure that's what it was. It has to be. Some type of conspiracy, right? Yeah, yeah. by Big Maglev. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, this episode is about Maglev trains, and uh, and it's one that, you know, again, some listeners have heard it, some haven't, so uh, we never want to let a good episode go to waste, and mm-hmm. besides that, we need to get it back into our queue, um, onto carstuffshow.com, and, and back into iTunes, so... We're going to re-release this one. I know it's a repeat for some of you, uh, but those of you that haven't listened to it, maybe give it another shot or give it the first shot. (laughs) That's so weird, isn't it? It's very strange. It is. It is. Uh, Podcasting does involve a lot of uh, tricky things with time and space. We do promise you that this episode is still relevant in the world of maglev trains. And, uh, you know, Maybe some of our jokes won't land the same, but in that case, they weren't going to land anyway. <laughs> I don't think a year makes a difference uh, in our jokes in they particular. They don't get better over time. No, no, no. Any, any maglev <laughs> puns or something that we had? I, I don't know if there were any. I have to remember. But uh, but anyways, with uh, without further ado, mm-hmm. here's that original episode from one year ago. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. And I am Ben. We are, as always, joined by our super producer, uh, Noel the Globetrotter Brown, you are you, and that makes this 
car stuff. Globetrotter. Yeah, I thought it would, you know, I thought it would work. They I don't, like it. They, you know, you sometimes... Uh, he didn't actually play professionally, did he? Or did, is he is he retired? <laughs> is he retired Harlem Globetrotter? Yeah, oh, that's what I thought you meant. Oh, yeah, uh, that as well. You know, Noel is a Renaissance man, for sure. <laughs> uh, so... I was referring more to travel. You've done some travel recently, as have I. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Uh, well, first, how about you? You, Because uh, we ended up in kind of the same place at one point, but not at the same time. Right. So where were you? Uh, well, I was out in California, and before that, I was in a small town called Elberton, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, which uh, you'll hear more about later. Uh, but... That pales in comparison to uh, your journeys. Well, my let's friend. let's not gloss over this. Where well, were you in California? I was specifically in Los Angeles. Okay, well, see, I also went to Los Angeles, but uh, while I was there, and this is what I, one thing I want to mention. Mm-hmm. This is one of my first stop in this whole story here. But I went to Los Angeles, and I made it to the Peterson Museum, the Peterson Automotive Museum. That's right. Yeah, and we. Only barely, briefly have talked about this in the office, Mm -hmm. so I I was just blown away by that place, and I'm so glad I did it. And it wasn't even my idea. It was my wife's idea. She, uh, When we got there, we had Mm -hmm. one day in town, and we were so close. She said, you know what? There's this automotive museum. Why don't you go to it? And I said, oh, the Peterson. It's right here. I knew exactly what she's talking about. I decided to go. Um, I got to tell you, I did not do the basement tour for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, that I had limited time. You know, I had maybe like two and a half hours, something like that. The tour time wasn't going to be exactly when I was getting there, so I would have had to wait to the last one, and that would have pushed it over. Mm. And it was like an extra 20 bucks or something like that. It was a lot of money, but yeah. probably worth it in that case, because that museum is pretty incredible. It's it's special. It really is. So I just have a couple questions for you on this thing, Okay, if I can ask yep. them on there. Uh, what were some of the most surprising or amazing things you saw? Okay, a few things. I saw um, I, uh, some cars that I had never seen. I can check them off my list as uh, I haven't seen them now. Uh, there were some concept vehicles there. There was also um, the round door rolls was there. Uh, the one I've been mentioning that on Facebook recently, which will be now be a long time ago when uh, when this airs. But um, mm-hmm. one listener posted a picture of it. I said, "Oh my god, I just saw this in person." Uh, it's at the Peterson Museum in the lobby right now. It's the round door Rolls Royce. Um, I, I saw. Uh, let's see, lots of uh, celebrity cars, movie cars were there. Uh, you know, the the real DeLorean that was used in Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fatty Arbuckle's car is there. There might be more than one of his car there. Uh, cars there. Um, I think it was a big Renault. Uh, Batmobile is there. Um, there are a few cars there from, uh, the Breaking Bad series. That's and so awesome. Walter White's Aztec was there. And the funny thing is, <laughs> I'm, I'm walking around this museum and I happen to have on my, my Breaking Bad shirt. It was a, um, a Los Pollos Hermano shirt with a couple of chickens, you know, back to back on the front. Just a crazy print t-shirt that I have. And, and as I'm looking at the, uh, the Aztec picture, the, the, uh, you know, something that goes along with it there, the plaque in front yeah. is, you know, Walter White driving in front of that that restaurant with that in the background, with that, that that restaurant in the background. And then someone kind of walks by and like gives me the nod, like, oh yeah, I'm a fan too. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I get, I get so many compliments on that shirt. But anyway, so <laughs> there's that, there's uh there's race cars that have actual racing history, you know, that, uh, and lots of, um, Oh, lots of motorcycles. Uh, mm-hmm. it, was just, it was a great museum. And you go through several floors. You start at the top and you work your way down. And the final floor is all those French cars that they had. You know, yeah. a, So that was the controversial thing. And I, I got to say they're beautiful, but it's not exactly what I expected to see there. But the whole mm-hmm. bottom floor is all those, uh, like, really overly ornate French vehicles that are, you know, like the Concours level vehicles, mm-hmm. uh, the custom body coaches and things. But yeah, the one of a kind. Really, really cool. And then we went to the Liberate Tar Pits and everything. But, um after that, because it's just down the road. Oh. So from there, we went on to, uh, we drew, we then flew to Shanghai, China, which mm-hmm. ties in with what we're talking about today. And then our eventual destination was uh, Phuket, Thailand. Mm-hmm. So I sp- spent uh, more than a week in Thailand and saw some crazy stuff there. Some, uh, you know, some, a lot of tuk-tuk vehicles, which you had told me about. Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting things there. There's a few, I've got only just a few photos because I didn't even carry, this is going to blow your, you away maybe. I didn't even carry my phone with me the whole trip. I yeah, just, just yeah. relied on my wristwatch. Which I think is a good thing to do if you can pull it off, you know, because for a lot of people, uh, the phone may as well be an extension of the body or the mind more more accurately. Well, I will admit that my wife had her phone with her, and that was what we used for photographs, you know, to, to capture the moments. But, but then uh, there's, there's also that idea, like I, w- I was talking to somebody about this earlier, because I'm going to 
oh, you don't know this yet. I'm going to be in Vegas, apparently. Oh, fantastic. It's this whole thing. And so uh, <laughs> I, I, was, I sense there's a story here. <laughs> right. But I was maybe it's a story for another day. I was asking. I've never been to Vegas. I've never even been inside a casino or gambled. Uh, and I was asking some people I knew who had been there before. It's like, well, do you have any advice? What should I do or not do in Vegas? And this one guy that I didn't know very well sort of turned around where we're at and he was like, don't go. He's like, if you got to go. And I said, well, I have to go. It's this whole thing. He said, if you got to go, second you get to that airport, you rent you a car, drive out to the Grand Canyon. He's like, that's the only thing out there that ain't a waste of time. Wow. Yeah, I think he might have some history with the <laughs> poker tables or something. <laughs> yeah, but, I would uh, say so. But um, and he. Well, that's he, interesting. You're gonna love that place. He gave me some. Uh, he gave me some great advice. But we also we also ended up talking about. You know, there's this thing that happens when people go on vacation where we want pictures, we want to preserve the memory, but does that dilute our actual experience? You I think know what it, I mean? I think it does. I spent two weeks with no phone in my pocket, not having to worry about locking it up every time you left the room or, yeah. you know, where it is in your pocket or spilling a drink on it or whatever yeah. it was, and, you know, dropping it in the pool or something. But uh, two weeks without it, and uh, I got to tell you, it was pretty nice. I, I like it. I'm not one to use my phone for a lot of stuff anyways. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, just normally, like, you know, when I do have it in my pocket all the time, I, I rarely pull it out. So I have my wristwatch on and I, I, I tell you, it was, it was sort of freeing in a way to have it that way. Now it was nice to have the backup, you know, with my wife with her phone only because of the camera. We couldn't really use the service. We weren't calling anybody. We weren't emailing. We weren't mm -hmm. doing any of that stuff. It was just strictly for a, a, a camera. So I could have carried just a pocket camera along with me and, and that would have been just fine. Mm -hmm. Um, so man, I, I would explore this option for future vacations as well. If I, if I can get away with it, I will not carry a phone on future vacations. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a great idea. I mean, there's the responsible thing to do too. You know, you have to be able to be contacted by, you know, if you're leaving your kid somewhere and you oh, got, yeah, you know, yeah. the, Parents, grandparents that want to contact you or whatever. But, oh, sorry I interrupted. It, no, no. It, sometimes it is increasingly difficult to get away from it all. But there was a, there was one little step there in the middle that maybe maybe we uh, we shouldn't gloss over so much, though. This is for our purposes today, ladies and gentlemen, not just the step we shouldn't gloss over, but the most important step because we received a uh, we received a listener recommendation from Superchib on Twitter about something that applies directly. I think you should tell everyone. Well, okay. So I mentioned that we went from Los Angeles over to Shanghai in mm -hmm. China. And uh, it wasn't anything spectacular, I guess. We weren't like making a week of it there or anything. It was just a, a layover, really, until we could go move on to uh, Phuket. And we were there for one day, though. We had several hours, maybe maybe 10 or 12 hours to, mm -hmm. to kill. At yeah. the airport, we had a day room. We checked in, and then we realized that the, uh, the Shanghai Maglev train departs from the Shanghai airport and goes to a little town nearby called Pudong. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like maybe 12 or $15 to ride this train a round trip. Um, and it's only about a, I think it's like, well, I'll, I'll tell you the details in just a minute, but yeah. how could I pass up the opportunity to ride on one of the only working maglev trains in the world, really? And that's short for magnetic levitation. This is some real science fiction stuff. Yeah, so we'll talk about, you know, the, the technology and all that yeah. in just a moment. But uh, this is, uh, it was really actually something special. I've never, uh, this is the fastest I've ever gone in a vehicle on the ground ever. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've been in, you know, I've done ride and drives with race car drivers and things like that. This is the fastest I've ever gone, Ben. Guess how fast we are going? How fast were you going, Scott? Maximum speed, 431 kilometers per hour, which is 268 miles per hour in a train. It was, was unbelievable. So cool. It was insane. really cool. It was so smooth, too. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the, you know, the, what you feel in this whole thing, but, um, it, it goes, uh, from, as I said, from the, uh, Shanghai Pudong International Airport to the outskirts of, uh, um, I guess central Pudong, which is, uh, not exactly Shanghai, but if you get on a smaller, like a, a conventional train, you can get to Shanghai. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about expanding the maglev line to Shanghai, you know, proper, but the cost is just outlandish. So we'll yeah. talk about that too as we get to it. But, um, the trip that, that I took was 19 miles with no stops. You know, it's just one stop there, yeah. one at the end, seven minutes and 20 seconds. Now, it's always 7 minutes and 20 seconds. They run so precise, and I'll tell you how precise they are about this. Uh, they are, this is their on-time record. 
to the second, they have a greater than 99.97% of the time accuracy record for being to the second accurate. Holy it's, smokes. It's exactly on time. It runs exactly on time every day, every trip. It's amazing. It's, it's precision run. So no one's holding the doors open. No, no. And, you know, I was on the first trip there, like the first trip out of the airport, mm-hmm. we, uh, we achieved something like 300 kilometers per hour, something like that. And I was kind of thinking, well, that's good. But that's like 180 miles an hour. I, I knew that it was capable of a lot more. You're a tough man to impress, Mr. Well, I, <laughs> I wanted to do, I wanted to max out because they've got signs all over the place because it's a, a former world record holder mm-hmm. uh, for the fastest uh, maglev train. It's not anymore. There's It's been uh, eclipsed by another train in Japan. But um, on the way back to the airport, we did reach the 431 because they've got you know markers inside. And looking out the window... And it was unbelievable. It was just a, it was a blur. Uh, you're going through countryside. You know, you can really get a sensation of speed when you're, it's an elevated track, but you get a sensation of the speed. Yeah. Uh, when you're traveling that fast, that low, it's, it's unbelievable. Did it's you get remarkable. a window seat? I did, yeah. Yeah. And you know, they're big. There's no, there are no seat belts on this thing or anything. It's like a, it's like a big airline seat almost. It's really cushy. Uh, you don't, you, know, I, you would think that it would be dead silent inside this thing, but it's not because the wind outside, uh, you gotta imagine it's, it's, like a 268 mile an hour wind that's mm-hmm. happening outside the cabin, so you hear a lot of wind noise. Uh, but other than that, it's it's really smooth. Really, uh, it's really a nice ride. It was it was something that I'm so glad I did, even though we had so little time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was definitely worthwhile to uh, I guess miss out on the nap time between the next flight, <laughs> you know, or after one flight before the next flight. Right. And just for reference, the the fastest train in the world currently is the Japanese maglev bullet train that you mentioned. It is because it reaches a speed of 603 kilometers per yeah, hour. 374 miles. Yeah, 300. Can you imagine that? It's, it's like more than 100 miles an hour faster than I was traveling is what this Japanese train now travels. And that was a record that was broken in April of 2015. Right. So and, and that's different. Uh, yeah, I should mention this, too, as we as we start to talk about this. What we're going to be mostly talking about today, if we talk speeds, is primarily operational speed. Right. Like yeah. the, the 431, you know, the 268 miles an hour, that's an operational speed. There's a maximum speed, which is higher than that uh, for every one of these. And they often will do a record run uh, with tests, you know, people that volunteer to do this, you know, to be on the train sure. during these tests, which is a, a brave thing to do, by the way. Um, it, but they, they volunteer to run these these test runs, which will be like a max speed world record breaking attempt. And then they back it down to what they normally operate at. And it's an exciting time to be alive. If you are interested in this technology, if you're interested in trains, you know, I've been going through this train phase for a while now. Yeah, because we've talked about trains, right? We've, yeah, we've talked about... Recently. Yeah, we've talked about uh, modern day hobos and how many there are or are not and how people still uh, people still use that as a form of clandestine transport. Yeah. But now... We're looking at this other side. You probably won't find people jumping on these things and holding on. Although, although it seems to me that when we were doing that hobo thing, that hobo story, we saw some footage. Yeah. I, I think we saw some that not quite the speeds that we're talking right now. No, they were Russian. I think. Yeah, they're Russian trains, and I want to say that the speeds are closer to you know like maybe 120 miles an hour. Yeah. Or something like that. There's still high speed. But still. Oh, yeah. I guess is you know what they they'll call that mid speed, I think, or something mm-hmm. like that. There's another term for uh for these that are below high speed. It's not considered like a bullet train, but right. but it's fast enough that they have to use climbing gear to latch themselves on to hook on to the train so they don't fly off because of the wind uh the wind that that, that they incur. I mean it's a um, it's a rough ride. But yeah, so these, these trains though, the one you rode specifically amaze me. I know I said it already, and this will be the last time I say it, but this stuff is so cool. It is so science fiction-y to me. If we, could I run some stats real quick? Of course. Oh, okay. Please, please yeah. do. So this, uh, this train, the one that Scott rode, the Shanghai Maglev train, construction work on it began in March of 2001. So it's been around for a while. It was a hefty price tag. 
1.2 billion overall, which is why I'm kind of surprised that the <laughs> price you paid was so reasonable. Well, okay, when they first opened, which was what in 2004, mm. I think the round trip ticket was something like six bucks U.S. dollars. Now, when I got there, it was like 12 or 15 U.S. dollars. So the price has gone up significantly. But you got to realize that you know they're talking about doing this Shanghai extension, as I said, so you don't have to transfer right at Pudong, the outskirts of Pudong. You would just ride it all the way to you know downtown Shanghai, and <laughs> this is unbelievable. The track is what was probably the big holdup here. The you know building the track because the yeah. track is so expensive. We'll we'll talk about track components in a moment, but for sure. But the, just to give you an idea of what this cost per kilometer to build, it would have cost um, China eighteen million dollars per kilometer to lay down new track to, into uh, to Shanghai. Now I think that that price is probably about four or five years old as well. Because now that they have this uh, this conventional rail that goes from that train station to downtown Shanghai, they no longer need this uh, this high speed extension, or they feel they don't need it. So mm-hmm. uh, they, they don't want to incur the cost that we're talking about this eighteen million per kilometer. And I don't, I didn't, uh, I wish I had looked up the uh, the distance so we could you know really extrapolate what that would actually mean. But yeah, and I know it's more than just that. There's going to be additional car charges and uh, you know purchasing land. You, know, you have to buy the land rights. Right. Um, there's just a lot to it. And building another another station in downtown downtown Shanghai. That's another thing. Yeah, um, you said the place is a little crowded, huh? Well, well, yeah, I guess uh, at either end it's crowded. The train itself wasn't too crowded. There weren't a lot of people on the train when we took it. A few. Uh, maybe it's too expensive. I don't know. I'm, I, maybe it's just something that tourists do. I don't know. But they've uh, they've they've got a lot of. I think a, a consistent group of passengers that go back and forth for you know for work for business. That's an excellent point. This also makes me think of uh, one of the the biggest things that I got obsessed with in the research for this episode. What's that? The the science behind it. How how do these things actually, you know, work? Ah, you know what? We can talk about how they work after a word from our sponsor. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk a little bit about what magnetic levitation is. Sure. Okay. So magnet. I feel like I'm I'm pitching a really weird concept. 
But at the, at the basic level, what they're doing is moving a vehicle or moving an object along these rails without making contact with the ground. And there's a guideway that uses these, that uses a series of magnets to reduce friction and reducing that friction while also enabling lift and propulsion means that this has some crazy advantages compared to orthodox trains using wheels. Yes. So there's, that's why they're able to attain that smoother ride, that much higher speed, and also are relatively unaffected by the weather. Yeah, frictionless is what, they, yeah. uh, what the, the way they say it in a lot of uh, a lot of literature. But um, there's there's a there's a a bit of a flaw to that, I guess. There's there's a point where friction comes in because some of these trains actually have wheels underneath that make contact at the stations. Yeah, when they go below a certain uh, certain speed, and that's going to be a very very low speed. When they're coasting into the station, they may drop down onto a set of wheels and roll that last few feet. You can think uh, of it as landing gear. Yeah, I guess that's a good way to think of it. That's, uh, that's perfect. So there's a few of them that do it that way. Some that remain floating the whole time. Others that use more of a conventional um, uh, rail system, I guess, because there there are magnetic trains that don't levitate. Uh, we'll talk about all these different types as we get to it. But yeah, it's it's interesting that you, know, you mentioned one thing. You said guideway. It's not really in a magnet in a true magnetic levitation situation. It's not a rail system. Right. It's a guideway that. Uh, uh, is is made up of a, a couple of different components. There is usually a um, a beam of some sort that houses uh, propulsion coils, mm-hmm. and these uh, propulsion uh, propulsion coils. I'm gonna have a tough time with that one. Uh, are next to lo- uh, levitation and guidance coils as well, and then along the center part of that track, uh, there can be a couple of different configurations. Either the train surrounds the rail so that right. um, it's impossible to derail, or maybe it's an opening where there's a you know potential for wheel support of some type. You know, if if it is a system that requires that, mm-hmm. um, not a full levitation system or maybe partial levitation, but then there's also some that you know do fully levitate that use the same system I just talked about, and they use the. Um, I know this is getting confusing, Ben. This is tough without visuals to describe this. But, ah, um, but luckily, there's a great article on how stuff works. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. What's it called? It's called How Maglev Trains Work. Well, it's pretty simple, isn't it? Then I guess you can go there and look and all that's pretty well pretty well laid out for you. And some of that we're, we're drawing from today. Yeah. But uh, it has to deal with the magnetic poles uh, or I guess poles of a magnet, really, north and south. Um, you know, of course, unlike poles attract and unlike poles repel, and they use that in a way to uh, push and pull the train along the track, or along the path, I should say. Uh-huh. So it's a uh, kind of a, <laughs> it sounds funny to say it, but it's a repulsive, attractive um, motion that mm-hmm. makes these things work, and it's how they manipulate that uh, that current or that, uh, that magnetic draw uh, to make the train move forward or to slow it down and stop it eventually. Right. And it's, it's all, it's really, really tricky. I mean, some of them have, uh, coils that are looped in almost like a figure eight configuration. Mm-hmm. Others have, uh, slabs. Um, it's just, there's a, there's a lot of different ways that the, let me take that again. I don't know if I like to say slabs. Let me. Okay. Some of these tracks have uh, magnetic coils that are in figure eight configurations. There are other setups as well, I, but um, you know to describe them here would be a little bit uh, futile. I think maybe maybe check out the article, but yeah, um, they all use a slightly different system. The track again is very very expensive. The electromagnets need to uh, need to be installed the full length of the track, and exactly. you know some of them are semiconductor magnets, some of them are just electromagnets, uh, standard type, I guess, not semiconductor. Um, just it, it it gets really really expensive per mile or per kilometer however you want to look at it and the margin of distance when we talk about these levitating they're levitating very close to the ground one to ten centimeters above the guideway yeah so that's or uh, between like less than half an inch and four inches yeah at the maximum four inches so you've got very very little clearance really in these things yeah but the thing is the magnets keep them in such a a, a perfect position on this track right I, I read something and i'm never i'm never going to find it in this pile of notes in front of me but <laughs> okay. um not only are they levitating so they're not you know um lifting you up but they're also keeping track of you know or, or i guess um programmed in or dialed in maybe mm-hmm. is the better way to say it so that it keeps you uh, balanced left to right yes up down 
side to side, uh, twisting a little bit. There's yeah. also, um, a heave. So, you know, if the train goes over a bump that, you know, mm-hmm. it can, it can, uh, heave, it can accommodate for that. Um, it's, it's roll, it's yaw, it's everything. It's, it's almost like, uh, it's like flying a plane almost. Well, yeah, it's all of the, like every direction, except they're, they're trying to maintain it on this, this rail because it's really floating. You're, you're floating on air. And they do this by changing the polarity of magnets. All right, so let's say the train is levitating. The magnets work. Bully for us. Good job, humanity. Once the train is levitated, we start piping in power to the coils that you mentioned earlier that along the guideway, the guideway walls. And this creates a, a system of interlocking magnetic fields that, as we said, pull and push this train. The electric current that goes to these coils is constantly alternating to change the polarity of those coils. And when that polarity changes, for instance, a magnetic field in front of the train, then it's going to pull that train forward, and the one behind it is changing polarity to push. So, so that's how you get going so fast is because there's this, this, uh, there's pull and thrust happening at the exact yes. same time. So, and not only that, it's frictionless other than air friction. Now, uh, one quick interesting thing that I, that I read along the way here, and then I'll let you get back to yeah. your uh, track discussion, um, <laughs> is that levitation is actually a small percentage of the overall energy consumption of these trains. Mm. Most of the power is used to overcome drag. So it's mostly to overcome uh, wind resistance. And they said that just for example, it takes two and a half times more power to travel 400 kilometers per hour than it does to travel 300 kilometers per hour. And that's with a train that's shaped in a very aerodynamic fashion. They're almost like bullets. Yeah. Uh, they're very, very sleek, very, very aerodynamic. But power consumption is not what you would think on these things. It's, it's, it's sure it's a lot for the magnets, but, but it's not so much for propulsion as you might think. It's just simply controlling that current in the exact right manner that they need to. And that's, that's really where the trick of this whole thing comes in because I remember seeing early tests with these things where they do, uh, models. And mm-hmm. this is when I was younger. Maybe even now, maybe you can find clips of this now, but um, they would demonstrate how, uh, you know, these electromagnetic systems would work. And they would put a, uh, like, it looked like a toy train on a track, and it would, you know, shoot along the track, sure, but at the end, it would just keep going. They couldn't stop it at that point, because it wasn't a controlled system, like, you know, the big systems we have now that that right. actually control trains with actual people in them. Mm-hmm. These were just models, but it would show, you know, the, the, the little toy or whatever it was winging off onto the, you know, the wall. Oh, it doesn't give you a whole lot of confidence when you see that kind of thing. But it is cool that, you know, you can set this on the track and it does, it zips along at what, you know, scale model 200 miles an hour or whatever mm-hmm. it is. It was very impressive. But again, I think the control thing was what scared a lot of people, but they have really incredible control with these. I mean, when I was slowing down on that maglev train, I, I was assuming that it would be a little bit more rough than it was, but it was a very gradual, very, very, very soft uh, deceleration. And I don't know why I just didn't think it would be that way. I thought it'd be a little bit more harsh, almost like an amusement park ride would be. Right. Yeah. And, and also, you know, thinking of the amount of speed reached at the peak travel time, you you would just sort of assume that there would be a harder stop to get back to zero. You would think so. That's right. Yeah. I mean, but then again, the acceleration was so smooth that, you know, that doesn't really, I mean, to be honest with you, it doesn't even throw you back in the seat. It's not like taking off in a fast car or something. It's not like a thrill ride. It's more, so it's so gradual that you don't really realize it until you look out the window and you, you watch a car that's next to you for a while and then the car slowly fades away and then you catch the next one. And then suddenly, I mean, pretty soon you're passing them like they're, it looks like they're not even moving. It's, un, it's unreal. I imagine in, in full disclosure though, of course, we all know that when new transportation technology arrives, there are a lot of eyes on it, and it's very easy for it to fall out of favor. The way it falls out of favor most often will be when an incident or an accident occurs. Yeah. With this technology, it's all there have already been accidents. One was on my birthday on the train that you rode. It was a minor one. Uh, a train compartment caught on fire. Yeah, there have been a couple of fires. Yeah, I think. there were no injuries in that. Well, in that, incident. In that one. Now that's uh, that's that's interesting that you bring up accidents because there have been a few, as you said. And, right. Uh, I don't know what year that one happened that you mentioned. You that said was '06. I was in '06. Okay, so another another thing uh, that happened in '06 was uh, was a bit more severe. Right. Uh, I shouldn't say a bit. It was a lot more severe. Yeah. And this one was a uh, it was an outright tragedy, really. Yeah. This was the Trans Rapid. Uh, test train in Emsland, Germany. Yeah. Now, on this one, 29 people had boarded this train for a test run when it crashed into a repair car that was left on the track. Now, can you believe that? When I read that, I, I was 
blown away because how could that happen on a system like this? Because in the on the Shanghai system, and I think on other high uh, high speed maglev systems, there are two microwave towers that are in constant communication with this thing, and if anything happens, they just shut it down. It stops. Mm-hmm. That didn't happen in this because they never contact. And there were people on that uh, that maintenance car as well. There were two guys working on the maintenance car. For whatever reason, I, I, I read some details about this, and there's there's more detail online you can find out about the, the whole incident. But that's the fear that you have when you're going this fast. When you're on that train, you're thinking, yeah. "Oh, I know this thing's going to derail. It's it's going so fast." And you're like, "You don't have a seatbelt on." You're thinking, "Like, what if we hit some? What if we hit uh, right. someone who tried to walk across the track? What if we hit anything? It's going to be cataclysmic. It's going to be a, a huge disaster. Everybody on this train is is doomed. You know, that's a bad way to look at it, but it's true. Well, on this train, not everybody died. On this, uh, you know, no, the, no. The twenty nine is a is a huge number, but that's not everybody that was there. In fact, the guys that were in the car that they hit uh, survived the accident and helped others escape. Mm-hmm. As we find, you know, if you read the details of it, but um, uh, to be honest, most of the passengers were killed. They were traveling at one hundred one hundred and twenty miles per hour when they hit them. Uh, that is a significant impact. It's true. And the thing is, too, this is the line. This is a German line. Mm-hmm. Um, it ran for a few years before this, right? Or yeah, so it was a test. It was a test run for that day, but it, it had run for a few years prior yeah. to this. So they had a system in place. It shouldn't have happened. Uh, but after this point, uh, they never carried passengers ever again. And then in 2012, I think that line went away. They decided that they weren't going to renew the contract uh, mm-hmm. for you know the rolling stock and also for the the property and all that. It just never right. it never developed to more than that. But despite that, despite these tragic occurrences. The fact remains that this technology has so much potential in in numerous applications. Uh, imagine being able to go from Beijing to Moscow in, what, two hours? Yeah. You know, I'm glad you said this too, Ben, because that was... Excuse me, Paris to Rome. Oh, Paris to Rome in two hours. Oh, that's a long way. Yeah. You know, Ben, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, we, we talked about the, uh, you know, the fatalities and the accidents and stuff, but mm-hmm. that is so few and far between. I mean, the one that we mentioned here, I think, I, I think that may be the only one of fatalities. I'm just trying to think back to the other ones that I've read about, but it's very, very few. I know that's the big fear, but you also mentioned, um, you know, the line in Japan mm-hmm. and the line in Japan has carried something like 10 billion people with, Amazing. with no incidents. No incidents at all. And they've gone through things like they've had trains on the tracks with earthquakes happening. I believe there's been a derailment or two because of an earthquake, a natural disaster, or a rock fall or something like that. But Mm -hmm. uh, no fatalities on that line out of 10 billion people. And the last thing here that I want to mention, this is where I initially started to go, Ben. Um, One of these little facts that you read along the way somewhere, and I'll I'll have to dig it up, but... um, they said that uh, there's there's no point in having humans control the train, the high speed line, and that's because we're not fast enough, Ben. I know what you're thinking. Hey, Scott, how not fast are we? We'll find out after a word from our sponsor. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. 
We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, high speed yeah. high speed line is different from a mid speed line. They said, you know, you may have somebody that's up in the in the front, uh, you know, to communicate with the towers or whatever. But when it comes to the point of like we got to shut this thing down because of something that's happening, of ahead, reaction time that yeah. is computer controlled. They said humans can't react fast enough to make this work. Now, to get an idea of how fast this is, I, I, that that very weekend I was writing this was it happened to be the weekend of in, Indianapolis, the Indianapolis yeah, 500. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think around their top speed, they were like at 230 miles an hour or something like that. Mm-hmm. You ever watch an IndyCar pass a stationary camera on the wall at 230 it's miles insane. an hour? Yeah. Unbelievably fast. It, it's on you and past you before you even know it's there. And I can't imagine trying to stop a train if something appears on the track ahead of it, a cow, a you boulder that has fallen. You definitely wouldn't have time. That's why it's con- uh, computer controlled. And they said that human reaction time just simply isn't fast enough to be able to react to whatever happens. You can't react. Yeah, even going back to racing, there's a statistic that's always stuck with me, which is if you are driving a race car at racing levels, when you blink, just the time it takes for you to close your eye and open it unconsciously, you have moved 37 feet. Yeah, it's crazy. And that's an, that's an IndyCar stat. Yeah. So that's exactly the kind of car. And I, I got to tell you, because I'm a huge fan of that series and mm-hmm. that, that race, I was out of the country when it happened. I had to record it. But while I was on that train, I was thinking, this is, okay, we're going 268. This is roughly what they're, the speed that these guys are traveling in a car. I can't imagine being in a car on a track with other with 32 other cars behind me. Right. Uh, and making four turns every 40 seconds. How, how do they do it? It's unbelievable. I mean... So skilled. I mean, you, you don't get a sense of that kind of speed until you're in that kind of situation, unless you're, you happen to be, you know, getting a ride along in that car mm-hmm. or something, which is rare or, uh, or something like that. This, this, uh, high speed train. There's another important part here. We're talking about, okay, we've talked about how vulnerable new technology can be to public opinion, to accidents, to mm-hmm. obstacles. However, it looks as if this technology is going to continue to grow and it looks that way because of the um, because of the incredibly high speeds that can be attained and because of the technology that can steer it, removing the factors or, or at least mitigating the factors of human error. But also, there's a recent development in maglev train technology that, if it goes through, is going to take us far beyond anything that I would have thought possible. Are you talking about the line in India? I am talking about India's first bullet train. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, there's a twist to this one, right? Yeah. So they only have, they might have some, uh, some moderate speed or some mid speed trains, right? Yeah. And they have a lot of, uh, you know, conventional trains. Sure. And, and of course we see people piled on those trains all the time in India. And, uh, and, and they have regular commuter trains that run between big cities, big industrial mm-hmm. cities. Um, also some that run outside of that, you know, the, uh, the more rural areas. Yeah. Right. This one that you're talking about, the one that you're going to mention in just a moment here, I'm I'm truly impressed by this, but also terrified by this. This would be <laughs> frightening, I think. Yes. Do you, do you agree? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so what's the twist? This bullet train, which will run from Mumbai to Ahmedabad, uh, will go underwater. Okay. Okay. So when you say underwater, though, it's in a tunnel underwater, I would assume. It's yeah, not going to be yeah. like just... Forcing its way through under, you know, it's not going to be, uh. It's not just going to go up a hill and then dive into the ocean. <laughs> okay, yeah. sure. Of course. Yeah. Uh, the rest of the line, it's only part of the line. Yeah. The rest of it's going to be on an elevated track, which is pretty much par for the course with this technology. So 
there's a stretch after what's called the Thane Creek headed toward Barar, and it'll go under the sea. Uh, this this isn't a tunnel. Like, have you ever been to the Atlanta Aquarium, Scott? Yes. All right. So you, and for those who haven't, this is something that several aquariums do. You'll sometimes find a corridor wherein you're walking under the aquarium where the fish and the and the animals and the plants are. Sure, it's glass all around, and it's glass all around. This is kind of what that looks like. Really? Oh, so it's going to be open to the the water. It's going to have an enclosure, but yeah, uh, that's. But it's not going to be a tunnel like you would drive through or something. Oh yeah, I, it'll be a glass tunnel. I think it'll like be a tunnel. I'm still. I'm still figuring this out. Well, you know what? I, I got to tell you, I bet that anybody that, you know, does a, you know, when you see an artist conception of what this is going to be like. That's what it is. They're all artist conception. I, I'm sure that they're going to show it as a clear tunnel with uh, maybe a shark swimming overhead, right? Or something and, like that. And That's, a lot of the artistic depictions don't show a tunnel, which to me is incredibly, incredibly strange because they consider if air resistance is already <laughs> yeah. the big source of friction, yeah. then how much more resistance is there Going, going through water. Well, there's no, there's no way that it's going to be going through the actual. It's not going to. The, the, the train surface isn't going to contact the water in any way. There's no way. Not only that, I mean, the the uh, the superconductor magnets. I'm, I'm guessing that the electricity involved with this whole thing just wouldn't allow it to work that way. Plus, uh, salt water. You can't have salt water oh, yeah. eroding everything every uh, every couple of months. I mean, it would just it would decay everything. There's just no way. They have to uh, maintain, um, you know, maintain. Uh, the equipment far greater than that. There's no way that even like ocean spray would be able to, uh, to, to contact this thing. They're going to have to watch for that, I guess, if it's near a, near a shore. Right. So, so yeah, we still no have way. a lot of questions about this. And this may be yeah. a situation where we go back and amend it. But if I go to India, I'm hoping to get on this train. And right now it's, um, as of 2016, when we're recording this, India is working out a loan deal with Japan. And the train is still a proposed train, but they want to they want to be able to ferry eighty eight thousand to one hundred and eighteen thousand passengers per day, or a hundred trips daily, to keep this thing financially viable. Max speed two hundred seventy miles per hour, um, and eleven stations. Eleven stations. So they need three trains every hour in each direction. And they're saying the construction will start in 2018 because they are still working on land acquisition. They're trying to right. buy land that they need for the for the track. Um, and the estimated completion date, did you mention that already? Not yet. Uh, between 2023 and 2024. Uh, but I would bet that that gets pushed back, especially if they're going to start production, uh, start construction rather in 2018, which, you know, how that works as well. That usually gets pushed back. Um, so I'm guessing that this may come a little bit later, yeah. but, uh, but maybe that's good because maybe there'll be new advances in technology that allow it to be even better or faster or, you know, whatever. And there's always yeah. some kind of advances that happen, but, uh, but good for them. They're getting their first high speed rail. Mm -hmm. That's good. And there's really only a few countries that have operational systems right now. There's China, there's Japan, there's South Korea, but they're testing, there's testing happening right here in the United States in Georgia, in Powder mm. Springs, Georgia. American Maglev Company. Yeah, exactly. And there's uh, Beijing, there's Tokyo, there's Tel Aviv, Israel. And there's proposed systems, geez, practically all over the world, Ben. I mean, Australia, Italy, the U.K., Puerto Rico, Germany, of course, uh, Switzerland, China, India, everywhere. Ty uh, Iran, Taiwan. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's like there's everybody's got a proposed plan. It's just how are they going to get the ball rolling on this? You know, how are they going to convince their, uh, you know, their 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 people, their government as, yeah. as well, that this is something they need because the cost is just ridiculous. It's it's really really high right now. Right, and if this proceeds the way that other things have proceeded in the past, what we'll see is that eventually the price will start to go down as more expertise is common and more systems are established. And can I mention this too, which yeah. we haven't said, and and we're just going to glaze right over this because there's right. no time to cover this but but it's not a new technology this has been no, our, no. this is something that was thought of back in 1905 there's the first patents for it were in 1905 yeah. and then again in 1907 there were uh, i think the guy that developed the uh uh, the same system that we, that I saw in China, uh, he did, he got his patents. He was a, a German inventor. He got his patents between 1937 and 1941. Several patents on on linear motors and track design and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then going back a few years prior to that, that was the first time that it, you know a prototype was ever demonstrated. That was in mm -hmm. the United States in 1913. And then uh, you know the first early actual maglev train was mentioned in a patent. 
yes. in 1959. So, you know, it goes, it goes back, well, more than a century at this point. It goes mm-hmm. back 110 years, 111 years at this point. Yeah, we um, thought we were, we were bad at <laughs> timely responses to things. <laughs> but yeah, there's all these steps along the way that, you know, we, we, again, we just can't cover here today. We got so much going on, Ben. We didn't, we haven't talked about the types of tracks or anything. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the different types of uh, suspension. We also haven't talked about the implications for using this to cross oceans. Well, you know, the good thing is that all this stuff is in our House of Works article. They can read the uh, the House of Works mm-hmm. article and find out about the different types of maglev technology and the potential uses for it. Like you said, crossing oceans. If you could, if I could find a way to take a train across an ocean instead of having to deal with the airport and the taxiing oh, yeah. and the wait on the runway and checking in three hours early uh-huh. for an international flight and yeah. all that. Uh, trains would save a lot of time in that instance. Now, we, we haven't been a huge fan of trains in the past, but this is a different thing. And, and if, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's a little scary too to think about traveling in a high speed train under the ocean yeah. for that long of a distance. And I don't even know if it's possible with the, you know, the underwater mountain ranges that, that are right. unseen the valleys. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the, you know, in the Marianas Trench, can you imagine crossing that it in, would a, be, in a train in a tube? It would be by far and away the most ambitious, expensive, and one of the most dangerous projects in human history. It'd be up there with landing on the moon. I almost, I'm going to say it's almost impossible, really. I I, I never say never, I guess, because you'd be surprised. But, you know, if they get this uh, this 20 miles or whatever it was in India to work out, uh, then maybe they've got a chance to do some longer distances, you know, that that they can prove, you know, what works, what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But I don't know about crossing oceans. That's a a big leap to make. Right. I don't know if that's in our lifetimes. But what what do you think, listeners? Uh, This is our our update on maglev trains. Uh, As we see more of this, maybe in the future, we'll take another look at it. But we want to hear from you. Have you ridden on a maglev train? Do you think that they're a wave of the future or a flash in the pan? Uh, Let us know on Twitter and Facebook where we're car stuff hsw if you want to see some of our earlier stuff about trains or maybe hear it would be a better word yeah. uh, check out our website carstuffshow.com where you can find every single audio podcast we've ever done and if you say i've got a story for you guys i've got a topic uh, that you should cover in the future all of our best suggestions come from listeners like you you can email us directly we are car stuff at howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.